Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten Podcast. Back on the show, Andy Edstrom and Croesus to do our monthly macro hang and talk about what's going on in the broader, wider world of <laughs> the, 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 the craziness that is going out there in clown world and all of this crypto meltdown. We focus on Silvergate, the bank that has been banking all of these dodgy, for want of a better word, uh, projects and companies that are uh, out there trying to scam people out of their hard-earned dollars and um, the ramifications of that. I hope you enjoy this rip. Thank you, Andy and Creases, for coming on. As always, a great hang with these guys. If you are not stacking sets, you should be. If you are, you should always be looking to up your stack. Uh, Swan Bitcoin. Andy works for Swan Bitcoin. SwanBitcoin.com forward slash Bitten. Go download the app. You can get yourself a free $10 when you sign up using that Bitten code and start stacking. You can also talk directly to people such as Andy because they have a white glove service and a financial advisory service for those that are looking for that little bit of extra help. Equivalent service in the in the Europe's is Relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H. Again, forward slash Bitten. Get hold of the um, Relay private team. Get a white glove service. They also have Relay for business. So if you've got a business that you're looking to take onto a Bitcoin standard, they have got you operating all throughout Europe. Give them a shout. You can also download the app and just start dollar cost averaging up to a thousand euros or Swiss per day, if I'm not mistaken, via any one of your usual payment methods. This is very quick, very easy to set up and keep stacking. Coin Corner, operate out of the UK, Isle of Man and serve many parts of Europe. They are an exchange, you can smash buy from them and you can also set up your auto buys as well. You've got three very good options there to start stacking your sats. Uh, if you want a global peer-to-peer KYC free exchange, head over to HODL HODL, hit the link in the show notes. There is a reference code that will help you save on commissions. Set it and forget it, your trades, where you want to buy, where you want to sell, and you can start stacking sats in a KYC free fashion. HODL HODL also run the Honey Badger, the Baltic Honey Badger conference out of Riga in Latvia. That is going to be the first weekend of September. Get to the website, order your tickets. There will be no discounts because it always gets sold out. WasabiWallet.io. Download it, create a wallet, send it through sats through that wallet, sit back and watch the magic happen as it automatically coin joins those Satoshis for you. Break that link between you and the exchange or the app in which you have been buying your sats from. Go down that rabbit hole, you will find lots of different ways to do it. There are always trade-offs in Bitcoin. Shiftcrypto.ch forward slash Bitten will get you 5% off the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only hardware wallet. That is definitely what you need to stack safe. 
Enjoy this rip with Andy and Croesus. Thank you. Yeah, right. We we, we are recording. Let her, let her we're recording. Run. We're recording, and, and and Lauren is here, and you guys are talking about fashion wear before I've even yeah. hit record. And you know the rules on these macro monthlies: we never talk pre or post record. <laughs> well, we'll recap then. So for for everyone listening, you don't get to see the image of Andy and I wearing uh, very generic looking black jackets that both happen to be Patagonia jackets from uh, our lives as uh, finance uh, professionals. And that's pretty much the uniform you have to wear. Is that right? Patagonia is like the, um, is that the, the virtual signal of a, of a Wall Street bro in, in, uh, on, the west, on the west side? Yeah, I guess the, um, the, the joke would be like a, a Patagonia fleece vest with like a button down shirt under it. Like that is a finance bro. Oh, uh, he, is that what? Yeah. Who's the dude from Hedge Eye? That 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 complete he, Keith <laughs> Keith McCullough. Oh my god, that's it. That's that's right on. That's I think luck. there's a little bit of intersection with tech there too. You know, somewhere in between. Uh, yeah, somewhere in between finance bro and uh, tech bro is uh, is the vest plus uh, plus button down something like that. So our um our uniform was always Ralph La- uh Ralph Lauren. Why do we even say it like that? It's it's Ralph Lauren, I think. Is yeah, that's the <laughs> company right yeah. now. But but Wall Street London bro would be uh, yeah. I have my Ralph Lauren polo on. Does it? Does Ralph Lauren own the polo brand? I think yeah. so. Yeah, that's 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 them. Yeah, yeah, that's them. I remember when the po- when the giant polo mm-hmm. logo mm-hmm. shirts came out. Very- they're, they're like it's not shoe. enough it's not enough to have the small logo it's like <laughs> the logo is as big as your hand you remember when those came out it was like having a shetland pony on your your left like out. yes we get it you're wearing polo got it and then the pop <laughs> collars too of course uh okay lauren uh do you have a sensible question for these gentlemen um well you guys keep coming on the podcast and I used up all my questions last time. So that's was the <laughs> only this was the only resort. Why do you keep coming on the podcast? Yes. <laughs> I knew you were gonna ask. <laughs> because we all uh, we all like each other and we all love each other. It's always a converse it's always a fun conversation. Uh I don't know. I always learn something, I always enjoy it. And uh so that's why I keep coming back. Yeah, I'm just trying to like pick up as much from as I can from from your father. Uh, you try to be as much like him as I can in mannerism and in life arc in every way, really. So any chance I get to hang out with Daniel Prince is a chance I'm going to take. And you get to do it every day. <laughs> <laughs> How lucky are you, Lauren? You get him all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you'd rather have an hour and a half for, for six weeks, yeah? That that would be it. Just check in. How are you doing, pal? Yeah, nice. Talk some shit and then be gone again. Okay. Right. Yeah, we'll see. Well, you're still only 12. Yeah. So give it 10 years time. Yeah. And I'll be hunting you down to come and uh, wherever you're living, whatever, you, whatever dreams you're chasing to make sure you're living the Bitcoin standard. <laughs> That's right. You you'll be able you'll you'll have to carefully consider whether you're going to invite him on your on your show, whether whether you know whether it'll be positive or negative for the for whatever you're going for for the ratings. 
Yeah. Mm. I mean, I might already have a lot of people on my list, so he he might be like <laughs> all the way like at the bottom. Exactly. And I tell you, if you're running like uh, Lauren Coin or something like that, I am not coming. No. <laughs> I don't know because I. I that's just now. Just... Nor, nor do any of the other grifters that start these coins. No. <laughs> That's the Lauren, dirty secret. Lauren, I have a question for you. Uh, are you familiar with Agincourt? Have you heard about this story of the last time uh, a, a, a British family invaded France and how that turned out? I have not heard of that story. Okay. Let's go, Croesus. Tell he's, the story. He's, he's always here for the history. Uncle yeah, Croesus. History. With, with, his, okay. with his story. So it was it was Henry V. It was early 1400s. Okay, early 1400s. Uh, the King of England decides it's time to invade France, much like Daniel Prince has done. Uh, <laughs> and the uh, so the English army crosses the English Channel, like you've done, uh, invades France, and then there's a pivotal battle to decide everything, where the French cavalry line up at the field of Agincourt and they've outnumbered the English. It's terrible odds. It's like 300 English longbowmen to 3000 French cavalry, fully armored cavalry. But the English were smart, just like you guys. They chose their place in France exactly where they wanted to be. And it rained that night. So the field got muddy. And the French cavalry charge charges down into this valley, really. And at the bottom of this field, it was a mud pit. So the lightly armored English bowmen picked apart the French cavalry and decimated them despite being massively out, outnumbered to begin. And that's how the French conquered, uh, the English conquered France. Love they that story. Oh my goodness, I remember watching a movie mm -hmm. like kind of like that mm -hmm. where it was two kingdoms fighting and they did the exact same thing. I wonder what that movie was. I have no idea, but it was with Timothy Chalamet. So. <laughs> that is right. the king. That is about Henry V. That's <laughs> it. There you go. Yep, that's the exact battle. And so that, that happened in France and... Uh, maybe right around you i'm not sure but that's the last time uh, that i can remember uh, an english fa family coming over to france and uh, the outcome was quite decisive we don't know enough uh, french bitcoiners who can kind of come on the show to defend uh, defend the honor of their country <laughs> at least i don't oh i got a, i got a whole group of them on telegram uh, probably <laughs> Yeah, they're not gonna like this part. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, do you want to uh, say good night? Yep. Yeah. And and don't forget, there is a uh, in the fridge door. You know your usual. Just your, your parting gift. <laughs> Great to see you, Lauren. See you, Lauren. They say goodbye. Uh, right. Okay, guys. Uh, yeah. Mac sometimes Popper... sometimes it's hard to hear her when she speaks from the side of the of the mic. I, I'm not sure if you're. I have you told her a thousand it. times, and this is why she will never have her own show. Got because it. Because she doesn't listen to the old man. 
<laughs> and she also does this because she kind of like sits on my lap when she answers you guys she turns to me to to respond uh, i'm like true the mic 300 yeah. fucking shows please just talk into the mic <laughs> i mean come she's on just as, she's just asserting her independence it's normal exactly it's normal princey exactly all right, the macro monthly or almost six weekly or whenever the fuck we can get our calendars arranged is is back with uh with you young fine gentlemen to talk about Bitcoin and what's going on in the uh, the wider world, of course. Uh, we've been DMing each other with a, a few topics to kick around. We may as well go with the elephant in the room, the uh, the great big silverback gorilla himself, Silvergate. Oh, just another gate. Right. Uh, it, it could. It, I mean, it's just it was well written in the first place. Uh, and a shout out actually to uh, Satoshi Baggins on Twitter. Uh, if you follow him, he's got a little uh, TLDR substack with um, I'll send you guys a link, actually. Uh, nice. And he's got he's got some some fun things on there, some fun memes and um, a little breakdown of, of what's been going on. But first of all, let's get um Let's get your take, guys. What uh, what have you been watching? What's been interesting to you with Silvergate? And uh, where should we take this conversation to kick off with? Yeah, well, I'll just say that uh, Satoshi Baggins, I do follow uh, Satoshi Baggins, which is a good follow. And I, but I hadn't realized that he had a uh, that he had a thread on the topic. Um, I guess my quick high level, you know, two cents. So first of all, as people know. Silvergate is like by far the most important bank, arguably, in Bitcoin and all of crypto, right? It's this like regional, if you can call it that. I think they have three branches or something. Last I looked um, in Southern California, you know, basically in the San Diego area. Mm -hmm. uh, and they went whole hog into, you know, into crypto, I think maybe starting 2017. Because I remember meeting one of their one of their bankers um who was at a conference uh up in san francisco in late 2017 and so yeah they they bet the company on it and uh and they grew dramatically and the stock went up like 20x and they were killing it and uh it's gone uh it's gone in reverse uh for sure um not least because or perhaps primarily because it seems that they were misdirecting funds that were supposed to go into ftx they didn't seem to notice that the account that they were sending uh, people's money into was the Alameda account. At least and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong on that fact. So they may have a liability associated, you know, basically with, with pushing money in the wrong direction, which is the one thing you're not supposed to do if you're a bank. Um, and uh, and then, of course, the other thing, there's been, you know, allegations uh, levied, and I know there's investigations ongoing, you guys may know the details of who's doing the investigating, but uh, some people think there's been, um, you know, there's been uh, impropriety and money laundering and that this perhaps, you know, I, I heard Mark Cahotis, who's a well-known short seller, um, talking about how he thinks maybe, I don't know, billions and billions, you know, could have been laundered somehow through uh, through Silvergate. And Silvergate kind of banks everyone in the industry. Uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of the not great uh, fact pattern and they've been losing customers you know in the last uh, few weeks so that's my quick summary Chris, you want to follow up there 
Yeah. Uh, so I used to have a banking relationship with Silvergate uh, oh. for my company. <laughs> okay. Uh, and and they've been nothing but uh, professional and, and on it, as far as I can see. Um, it, I haven't banked with them for a number of months now. Um, but it has been interesting watching like, so they, they definitely were around before 2017. It's, I guess it's possible they started at the very outset of 2017 because uh, I started banking with them mid 2017. And it seemed like they had already been around for quite a while in, in crypto in particular. Mm. Um, and it has been interesting watching over the last few years, their policies changed about deposits as a customer. Um, the expectation at first was, you know, you don't need to have any balance in particular. Uh, and then that changed over time. Um, and, and the monthly service fees went from nothing, literally zero to a few hundred bucks, uh, several hundred dollars every month, uh, just to have a bank account with them. And then the expectation grew to be, uh, uh, grew to be, uh, that you would have a hundred thousand dollars, um, um, in, in your account, uh, with them and, you know, for, you know, the business I was running was a, was a, a Bitcoin investment fund. I wanted all my money to be in Bitcoin on behalf of my investors. So that, uh, was always a bit of a uh, source of friction. Um, and, but I, but I guess in hindsight, it, it reveals the pickle that they were in the pinch that uh that any bank is in but especially true with a crypto bank of um banks need deposits they need to have uh, deposits in order to run a bank um and that is particularly uh difficult with crypto because of the ebbs and flows of crypto clients by definition um in a bear market everybody's running for the door uh in a, in a bull market people can't get money in fast enough um, but when you're doing the industry, industry standard uh, fractional reserve banking, uh, that becomes a big problem because fractional reserve banking amplifies uh, your natural ebbs and flows of deposits. And you can have a real crisis if you, you know, uh, don't have enough deposits in order to meet all of your customer withdrawals or to maintain a certain level of capital um, you know, deposits on hand. So, you know, I feel for Silvergate because this is just kind of the outcome of uh, trying to be the bank um, to absorb all of the growth in crypto. Uh, I think they could have done better for themselves by limiting themselves to just Bitcoin or Bitcoin companies, because you're inherently going to have less volatility if you do that. Um, and then of course there's the, the big elephant in the room of like, well, FTX was engaged in fraud and their, uh, due diligence did not catch the fact that, you know, money was being sent to Alameda instead of FTX. And that was ha happening under Silvergate's umbrella. So I, I hope they survive. Um, they may not, uh, if they don't though, I, I, I'm aware of several banks, regional banks that saw the success of Silvergate over the last half dozen years, and they're trying to do the same right now. So, you know, it's a winning strategy for a regional bank. If you're 
confined by geography and your geographic footprint of how many um, branches you have, but you have aspirations of growing, you can take on this whole digital sector and greatly scale the you know, deposits that you're dealing with without having to really in increase your, um, the number of store branches you have. So other people will do this if, if Silvergate goes down. Um, hopefully those banks, the next wave of them, realize that they need to have a little tighter controls. And hopefully some of them realize that they can greatly de-risk uh, this venture of like, you know, being the digital asset bank uh, if they stick to just Bitcoin and Bitcoin companies. Now, you mentioned the due diligence there, and I'm going to read to you a tweet from Silvergate Bank themselves on the 5th of December, 2022, from Alan Lane, the CEO. Silvergate conducted significant due diligence on FTX and its related entities, including Alameda Research, both during the onboarding and process and through ongoing monitoring in accordance with our risk management policies and procedures. Great job, guys. I think that's a it's a good example of well, there's a couple things there. So I have no doubt that they have policies and procedures for due diligence. You know, a question is are those sufficient? Um, and then another question is, did they follow those policies and procedures? Yeah, probably probably they did. I think it also, you know, gets to other bigger questions. I mean, this loops into the you know, my head still explodes when I hear stories of guys who are running uh, crypto hedge funds who had most of their money on, you know, FTX offshore. Like, I still can't get my head around that. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, banks are in one way notorious for having stringent, you know, difficult processes uh, for onboarding. Um, and then in another way, they're also notorious for not always exercising common sense and looking at the big picture <laughs> like oh this thing that has an onshore exchange also has an offshore exchange flag one. Oh, also they're running a hedge fund strategy you know that could uh, compete or conflict with it you know red flag two oh also it's run by a 28 year old <laughs> and uh i mean it's just there's there's a uh, in retrospect these things were obvious, and I guess if you're looking from the outside and just sort of marveling at at this wonderkind uh, known as SBF, you know maybe maybe you just I don't know you just assume he's that smart. But if you have a process whereby you're collecting some information about your potential uh, customer here, uh, it does make you wonder. Um, it does make you wonder really about the risk committee or sort of the big picture thinkers um, as opposed to the you know the check the box. Um, minutia uh, when when thinking about how to who you're going to do business with. Yeah, yeah. Ba banks are are good at the uh, check the box due diligence, and they're not good at noticing. I, I forget the the scale of it, but it was something like nine billion dollars flowed from Alameda to FTX, or in, or vice versa. Um, right, and that that should raise a red flag but if you've already cleared the check the box onboarding process of like oh the, this is how we're going to do business and you might see money flowing from here to here occasionally sometimes then that's put in the system as like 
okay, that, that might happen. And then it, it can happen for $9 billion and it's still within quote unquote, within what was expected. Um, and so there's the, I think Andy's right that the qualitative uh, risk assessment is hard to, it's hard to quantify. And, and because of that, it, it's easy to mess up um, when you're, you're paying, you're paying your frontline employees to check boxes rather than, um, you know, think like SEC regulators. Uh, and, and so those things can happen. There's also the constant push pull of the business development guys, you know, and the risk committee, right? This is something, you know, we all got to see it at the banks that we were at. Right. Um, I remember, you know, the, the guys pitching deals, you know, buyout deals, big leverage loans, big junk bond deals. They're going to make millions in fees. This is the bankers, right? Um, and uh, guys get paid very well to do this. And uh, you know, the risk committee's job, of course, is to is to play defense, right? Is to is to push back, is to find the you know the risks embedded in X Y Z deal or or ABC potential uh, you know counterparty or customer. And so there's always a tension there between the guys who want to grow the business and the guys uh, who are managing risk. And if you look at Silvergate's balance sheet and you look at the stock price uh, and and the path it traced, I mean, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have had to see the second part of the story, right? <laughs> the return to Earth. Just looking at the first part might have given you a clue about how well they were balancing, uh, you know, risk management versus just waving the business in the door. I think you're on mute. Yeah. So one, one, the interesting thing I found, well, I found interesting when you go to Silvergate and you just hit their about us tab based in uh, La Jolla. Am I pronouncing La Jolla. La Jolla. La Jolla. La Jolla. Yeah. Based in La Jolla. Because it's the second gate, not the golden gate. It's the silver gate. San Diego. Oh, no way. Okay. All yeah. right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Uh, Silvergate is a Federal Reserve member bank. So here is a fully paid up member to the uh, the overarching, uh, call them whatever you like, uh, disgusting, despicable, manipulative, uh, you know, uh, there are many, many words we could use uh, of that bank. Now, are they protected or do they go under? Hmm. Yeah, I, it sure seems like they're being made an example of, and I don't. And I wonder the extent. Like, it, does that initiative, whoever's behind that, whoever's driving that, uh, does that go for the jugular, or does that just beat them up sufficiently for for a lesson to have been taught um, and established for the industry? Uh, and will their balance sheet enable them to survive? I don't know. And to become a member, was there always an insider placed on the board of the bank as part of the old revolving door mechanism that we all know happens? And if so, who was it? And what role are they going to be playing in the next few years when, as we see, the SEC are coming hard for the crypto bros in particular I don't see I I see Silver Silvergate was so tiny when it began or when they got, you know, started building their business in this industry, in the crypto industry, that I don't know, it's hard to imagine it's hard for me to imagine that anyone at a very high level 
is really pulling the strings in their favor at this point. Um, that's number one. I think number two is it will depend on facts and circumstances. So, you know, if Cahotis is right and mm-hmm. there's tons of uh, dirty money that got laundered through Silvergate, uh, then this, then the future for Silvergate is not bright. Um, also true <laughs> for management, by the way. I mean, there's not too many things that can send you to jail, but, uh, you know, that might be one of them. Um, I'm talking about not too many things in the finance industry, right? Um, most banksters are too clever to uh, to end up behind bars. Um, so now, yeah, if it just happens to be that, oh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the criminality or the potential liability associated with failing to direct the money to the correct account. I'm talking about, you know, to Alameda instead of FTX. Um, certainly that could take down if they have a bunch of liability there, then, you know, that balance sheet is not salvageable. So they mm-hmm. could go out of business for that reason. So they've got a few ways to to lose the game, uh, more than one here. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll just we'll see what happens. Well, when you go to their About Us page and do a little bit of further uh, digging, Chairman of the Board Michael Lampres, Lampres, Lampres. Oh, Lampres is he the guy that was at Coinbase? Oh yeah. You know he's chairman of the board. I did not realize. Oh, there you go. Good sleuthing, good sleuthing, <laughs> Princey. Princey Let, knows how to use the internet better than me. Well, let's let's <laughs> just read through his bio. Uh, he's been chairman of the board since June 2021. So he's a new addition. Uh, he was an executive in residence at venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. Ever heard of? Those guys? Anyone? Like, no, yeah, a few nodding heads, uh, probably from the listeners too. Uh, he used <laughs> to be chief legal and risk officer of Coinbase. Oh, really? Okay. And general counsel of Bitnet. Ne- don't know Bitnet. Never heard of them. He's a lawyer. Anyway, yeah. He was earlier a White House fellow and held departments in the U.S. Department of Justice. Any chance at all that he was put on the board in June 2021 for a reason? I mean, I don't know. Maybe I've been reading too many books like The Creature of Jekyll Island and The Secrets of the Federal Reserve, and I'm just oh, a yeah. crazy conspiracy no, that's, theorist. That's a clear revolving door case. That's uh, yeah, that's renting uh, renting government experience and connections uh, for sure. So. That leads us on to the question of MicroStrategy's tweet, which I will uh, read out. Here we go. Because this story just keeps getting better. Um, Which was uh, posted on uh, the 2nd of March. We have a loan from Silvergate, not due until Q1 of 2025. There are market concerns, RE, Silvergate's financial condition. For anyone wondering, the loan wouldn't accelerate because of an insolvency or bankruptcy. Our Bitcoin collateral isn't custodied with Silvergate, and we have no other financial relationship with Silvergate. So what does happen to that loan if they do fall off the face of the earth? Yeah, that's a good question. I, obviously, that, that comes down to the, the contract. Uh, what's written in there about the terms of the loan. 
But th that tweet sure suggests that even in the event of Silvergate going under um, and that loan being fire sailed to some other buyer, so some other bank would buy that um, contract and and assume that uh, you know the, the liability of that and also the asset of that uh, of MicroStrategy MicroStrategy paying them back with interest in 2025. Um, so if it's written into the contract that even in the event of Silvergate going under, uh, this loan won't be called, uh, won't be due. Um, it, it, the terms will remain to whoever ends up purchasing the, you know, the rights to that loan in the future. Um, that's what it sounds like is happening there. That's what it sounds like is how it's structured, which if I'm micro strategy, that's what I would have wanted to make sure to do, because I think part of that idea is knowing that the 2024 halving will have some impact on Bitcoin's price. So if you're borrowing money and you're planning to repay that, you're scheduled to repay that in 2025, you want to make sure that that is the time that you know you have to settle this up, knowing that the 2024 halving will probably cause a bull market that will mean the price will be a lot higher in early 2025. So it sounds like MicroStrategy was smart enough to cover their ass uh, in terms of how that structure that contract was structured but um without seeing the contract itself we can't really say with certainty how ironclad that is so i'll, I'll hop in there um as you both know michael Saylor's no fool yeah. um it would be it would be way off market for there to be some acceleration clause that's associated with the financial health of the lender right I mean, the way the credit markets work, the corporate loan markets worth work, there's definitely, um, you know, the lender wants to protect itself. Um, and so the lender will, if they can, include covenants that track the financial health of either the borrower or whatever collateral they're lending against, in this case, Bitcoin. And in this case, they did do that, right? My, It's been a while since I you know, looked at this, but my recollection is yes, you know, there, there was a effectively a margin call feature, um, associated with, you know, the price of Bitcoin dropping far enough that would allow the, the bank to, you know, to, to yank the collateral, but I've never seen, you know, in my career, a, uh, you know, a covenant that has anything to do with the financial solvency of the, of the lender. Um, it's really about the financial solvency of the borrower. It's it's the same concept that you know for folks that if you uh, borrow to mor you mortgage your house, right? Uh, it's not your problem if your lender <laughs> becomes insolvent, right? Um, it uh, you know someone else will swoop in, they'll buy that loan. That loan is an asset, you know, that they can take on um, to their to their books, and uh, and the the music goes on. And, um, yeah. And, and so I, it would be shocking to me if there was some, you know, if, 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 if it weren't, uh, if it weren't the case, as I described, nothing's impossible. And I haven't, you know, delved, I haven't read the whole document or anything, but, but I'd be surprised if, if something like that existed. Definitely something to have on our radars, uh, for, for sure. Uh, and I've just checked as we're talking right now, what is the latest news? Just a, a quick, um, Silvergate. Google search and hit news and a few hours ago 
Uh, it's been, uh, there's a headline signature can thread the needle on cutting crypto as Silvergate collapses. And this is released by your old friends, JP Morgan. So they're backing signature and they're downgrading Silvergate. So Andy, you want to weigh in on what's going on in Wall Street here where the, uh, the sharks have got their fins up? <laughs> so speaking of signature Attack mode <laughs> i met with a banker from signature back in 2017 when i was working on a business uh in the sector and just playing off what you said before jesse which was you know with silvergate uh, yeah everything was free and then okay and then they started putting in minimum balance requirements and then fees etc <clears throat> i remember having this conversation um with these guys i think it was signature i actually can't remember if it was signature or metropolitan it was one of the two and the guy was like, great, love to do business with you. You need to keep a, mil a minimum million dollar balance in your account. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and uh, that was that was uh, that was a pretty uh, high bar to clear for uh, for the business that uh, that I was planning to launch. Um, so they've been in it for a while. Um, I'm not really sure why JPM would back any of the other you know, banks that are servicing crypto, although who knows, maybe they had, maybe they're invested in them, you know, maybe, maybe they've got some, uh, some deal going on. I have no idea. Maybe JP Morgan is looking to acquire one of the larger, you know, may maybe JPM would love to see more of the business flow to one of the major, uh, you know, New York or more major New York banks that they can just acquire later to get into the business. Um, I'm not really sure what, uh, what they're, with their nefarious angle is there, but um, but yeah, there's only a handful of of banks of that I know of of any of any size that are servicing this industry. Now, what was interesting? I thought it was I can't remember. I think I heard Caitlin Long on a on a podcast recently. She said that so, there's something came out of government in, indicating there were over a hundred banks in the U.S. system that actually had some kind of business with crypto companies. I don't know how real that is. You know, I have no idea who those banks are. I'd love to. I'd love to see the you know the next hundred names on the list that are that are servicing uh, the industry. But uh, but those are my thoughts. Yeah, I'm aware of like ten, quite a long tail, I'm sure. So I'm I'm gonna now lean on the the Substack article for some shocking figures uh, from Satoshi Baggins, uh, where he covered this a little bit in his um, Substack. Uh, here are the details. People withdrew $8.1 from Silvergate after its client FTX went bust in November. I mean, that's quite a bank run, gents. Like $8.1 To cover those withdrawals, the bank had to sell off debt at a loss of $718 million, revealing a $1 billion loss for Q4. Wow. <laughs> The bank had to take a loan from federal home loan banks. The DOJ is investigating Silvergate over its relationship with FTX and Alameda. Hence that tweet from the CEO, I guess. Silvergate's own payment network, SEN, has been halted. That happened on Friday night, I think after hours. They called that to a close. And uh, yeah, and now it's be, the stock is being shorted into oblivion. I think it was down 60%. On um, yeah, last, Friday, last week. here's the last couple of figures here. Sorry for the cough. Silvergate handles over eleven billion dollars in total assets. 
They have 1,500 crypto service providers as clients, and they are responsible of 80% of all funds flowing in and out of the crypto market. This is it, guys. Like, this is the one. Do they keep it alive? Or is this how they obliterate, in their eyes, how they obliterate us nerds who like freedom money? Like, it's a risk. I mean, it's it, what's it? It's a short term risk, I would say. Yeah. I mean, yep. there's, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely a risk that many enterprises in the sector, however you define it, uh, have one bank account and it's with Silvergate and that goes away. And so they have to scramble. And some of them, you know, just can't get banked because current, you know, entrants that are uh, either keen to do business in the space in the long run. Or, you know, existing banks, you know, have just decided their risk committees have decided, oh man, this sector's too hot. You know, we're gonna we're gonna pull back. So I mean, yeah, I think some businesses will go bust for lack of um, you know, lack of bank account access, whether it's because Silvergate goes under or because Silvergate, you know, has to shrink. I mean, they already have shrunk, as you pointed out, with uh, with all the withdrawals. But um, yeah, there's there's going to be there's going to be effects on the industry. Yeah, I want Jesse's I take. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's I've, I've, there's two worlds. There's one world where this is um, this regulatory action isn't intending to uh, clamp down on um, crypto on ramps and off ramps and um, seriously wound uh, the industry. So if, if that's if they're not trying to do that, and this is just innocent market forces at play, you know, Silvergate grew too fast, too loose, took on too much, didn't do their diligence, or got blindsided by FTX and fraud and a bear market amplifying all of that at the same time, and you know, this is creative destruction ultimately. That this Silvergate didn't risk manage appropriately, and other banks have an opportunity to step in, serve the same sort of do the same strategy of be a small regional bank prepared to take on large digital asset customers, um, rapidly grow and just do a little bit better job of risk management along the way. Um, great. Then people will do that. That'll be a great outcome for long-term um, stability and durability of the market. Um, you know, that'll, that would be an anti-fragile outcome. So there's the world where this is innocent market forces. There's the world where um, the, the government is trying to do whatever they can to either destroy crypto and they think this is you know the best surface area they have or quite possibly um, make it just really hard for crypto businesses such that they have to um, bend the knee to whatever regulatory requirements uh, regulators want to wheel out as your alternative to dying. Um, so th those seem like possible. Those are the two different worlds I see. It's either innocent or it is a concerted attack to either kill crypto, which is not possible, short term can hurt, um, you, certainly with Bitcoin. Uh, you can't kill Bitcoin. You can kill securities um, masquerading as altcoins, aka all of them. 
Um, <laughs> and I don't know. We'll see how it turns out. The thing that I know, though, is is that you can't stop Bitcoin in all of this. Um, at least from like a U.S. perspective, to stop Bitcoin, to really persecute Bitcoin and Bitcoiners, would mean um, chipping away at all of our rights down to the very heart of it, the core right that we as Americans value, which is freedom of speech, which in the 90s, cryptography was clearly established to be speech. So, you know, and, and since Bitcoin is designed to be a commodity, a digital commodity, it's not a security. It's the only way to really persecute Bitcoin and Bitcoiners would be to fly in the face of our entire history and the entire legal system and, and our Bill of Rights. So that's why Bitcoin is safe in all this. And because of Bitcoin's anti-fragility uh, and the entrepreneurial incentives that that presents to individuals to figure out how to work with Bitcoin, to bank Bitcoin, to, to find a way to sell picks and shovels to people who want exposure to Bitcoin. Um, that's the incentive that Bitcoin creates for everyone. And that's why it ends up being anti-fragile because people find a way to make money by servicing uh, Bitcoin and, and Bitcoiners. So we'll see what happens. It's not a problem for Bitcoin long-term. It's a big problem for the crypto industry beyond Bitcoin. Uh, and short-term, it, it could hurt. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a it's a Jesse, as you said, you know, it's it's the we know where the we know where the end of the path is, you know, many years from now, but we don't know what route the path follows. And so, yeah, I mean, if this is short term somehow, you know, really negative for uh, even for uh, for Bitcoin companies that get debanked, you know, we'll get to thank our uh Thanks, Satoshi, that we have longer to stack, perhaps a little bit longer. Um, I don't believe that it will make a big difference, as you said, in the in the long run. I think very, very likely that Bitcoin still wins. And so we don't know what the path will be. But um, but but that's why I look at the at the long term. I mean, that's why I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but like I get less and less interested in the short term, you know, price movements and the. TA and the, you know, what's happening next week or why is price up or why is price down today? And uh, the long-term view, the long-term view is more and more interesting to me and the short-term uh, machinations are, are less and less interesting. Andy, you, you had an interesting point to me and when we were talking on one of our phone calls, uh, you were talking about Bitcoin's next decade might be like a, a 20, 30% CAGR rather than the 100% that we've seen. And then that suddenly puts it in like venture capital as like an asset class has like a historically something like mid 20s percent return um, on average every year. Uh, and so that, yeah, that might be just the nature of looking forward that this asset is a little less sexy, a little less volatile, um, but still... <laughs> risk adjusted the best asset to hold in, in the entire investable landscape. Yeah. Sorry, moon boys listening, uh, listening or watching. Um, I remember that conversation and, and, and that was what, one of those points It's probably last year, you know, when the Russia, you know, Ukraine stuff was, was starting to unfold. And yeah, I was just thinking to myself like, okay, 
we may live in an inflationary, you know, durably inflationary environment. Like, yes, inflation will spike and yes, it'll drop. But like on average, maybe it's going to be significantly higher this decade than in prior decades. So what does that mean? Well, it means bonds are are in bad shape. It means even most stocks, most equities are going to be kind of crap, like could be a lost decade. You know, basically you make you basically you're lucky to keep pace with inflation with stocks. And then Bitcoin kills it with a, you know, with a 10 to 15 percent annualized return. <laughs> yeah. In and it looks pretty good. Increasingly, <laughs> I'm not think... saying that's a base case. I'm just saying that's a very possible scenario, just like the alternate scenario, like you've laid out uh, before, you know, the sort of par parabolic uh, scenario um, is also possible. We just don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm living one having at a time. I think having boom bust cycles continue for at least the next decade. Uh, that's just how it's going to be, I think. But uh, yeah, I... I, I I think it's 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 very interesting that we could be in for this asset just slowly morphing to be to be less sexy to be to be something that uh, replaces bonds in terms of what it's doing for your portfolio, um, and that's like that's a fantastic transition. We should welcome that because you know if Bitcoin stops having. 80% drawdowns and suddenly it's 50% drawdowns or whatever happens over the next decade. Um, and the track record of the halvings keeps playing out such that it becomes more, it's easier to see the pattern. We don't, right now we only have three data points. Suddenly you have five and you see, oh, every halving, there's a supply shock. The price drifts upwards because there's not as much supply going out to meet just as much demand. The only way to reestablish equilibrium is the price to go upwards that turns into a bubble this happens every four years uh that is going to become clearer to see and at the same time bonds are going to underperform because of the scale of of the national debt the amount of unfunded liabilities that we have we have 31 trillion dollars in the u.s of national debt interest rates are climbing they were zero they're on their way to maybe 10 percent you know, in the extreme case, let's say that Volcker broke inflation by, by setting interest rates above inflation. Inflation now is what seven, eight percent. If we have 10% interest rates, it takes some time for this to set in, but you're talking about $3 trillion in annual interest expense to service $31 trillion of national debt. We are, we've been running $1 trillion deficits for the last decade. You add $3 trillion in interest expense on top of that, you're talking about $4 trillion in, in deficit every single year in the US. Our record tax revenue year ever was 2021. We brought in, as a country, we brought in $4 trillion in tax revenue. So you're spending twice as much as you're taking in in your record year ever of tax receipts. Um, that money has to come from somewhere. It comes from issuing debt. You're printing money by issuing debt to find that extra $4 trillion that you're spending but not making, which means that bonds will underperform because you're flooding the market with more debt. You're printing more. The, the uh, credit worthiness of the US will drop. Um, the likelihood that the dollar holds its purchasing power will become increasingly clear that it can't structurally, mathematically cannot do this. So 
Bitcoin becomes the role in in portfolios everywhere that bonds currently assume today of Bitcoin will deliver a nominal return that outpaces inflation because of the halvings. And you don't want to hold bonds. And so $300 trillion in, out there floating around in, in various debt instruments is increasingly going to be drawn towards Bitcoin. That's a future I can, I can definitely imagine. Uh, and, and, you know, I'll just add that the, probably the road won't be, uh, won't be straight. Um, we've already lived through recently, you know, like I stick to the, you know, higher inflation thesis, right? Like I think inflation in the 2020 is going to be higher than it was in prior decades, but, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be sine wave. It'll, it'll be fits and starts, jump up and down. You know, there'll be, there'll be periods in which. 10 year and 30 year treasury bonds perform really well. <laughs> uh, they may be short periods and it may be that, you know, your bonds are going the wrong direction 80% of the time, at least your, your long bonds. Uh, but, um, but there'll be periods of reversals um, because that's just how financial markets work. Things get overbought, they get oversold, they move in trends, trends get established, then people pile onto the trends Eventually, something reverses the trend, um, and so you know if you can trade those trends, uh, you know that that's one of the ways to actually make a, in theory, to make an acceptable return this decade. But I got to tell you, it's pretty hard to to pull that off. Um, I prefer to pick a few assets that I expect to go up in the long run and or behave differently from the rest of the assets in the portfolio, and I think Bitcoin is one of those. And uh, so, yeah, it's going to be a bumpy ride. I just caution people. Many, many have learned the hard way that the path is not straight. And then some <laughs> of them use leverage and things go badly. The the journey to the moon uh, can take a few U-turns, right? That is, the, uh, is probably the, a good analogy. But I, I'm looking at the, whilst you guys are riffing on the, the you know, the U.S. debt here, I, I just called up usdebtclock.org. And what's really so sickening here is, you know, it tells you the U.S. national debt, $31.6 trillion, but then it shows you per citizen and per taxpayer. So per taxpayer is $246,867,000, right? It, uh, $100. It, 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 hang on, $246,867 per taxpayer. But per citizen... So this is basically everybody in the US, somebody that was born yesterday to somebody that's going to pass away tomorrow. Everybody is carrying $94,451 on their head. And then when we talk about in the Bitcoin space about, you know, printing this money is just passing debt on to, you know, the generations that follow us. This is what we're talking about. People are being born into almost $100,000 worth of debt without even knowing. And if you're not looking at Bitcoin and thinking there is a uh, you know an answer to this, the the true hedge, I suppose, whatever you, whatever language you want to use, um, yeah, I mean, wait, but but Princey, remember Krugman? Debt is money we <laughs> owe ourselves. Right, debt is money we owe ourselves. <laughs> I love that. I love that quote. Ourselves. Ourselves being, uh, yeah, being the 
the future generations who are uh, who are saddled with this uh, with this burden, if it doesn't come to a ignominious head uh, sooner than that, which I expect it probably will. Although, who knows? Uh, who knows how long the the Ponzi can can continue? Uh, some say it won't last that much longer. I'm not sure. I think we get some resolution probably this decade. And by resolution, I mean, you know, ongoing higher than average inflation. I mean, it's 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 interesting to think about, you know, if you can somehow, I don't want to say surreptitiously, but, you know, they just, uh, I think they just changed the methodology by which they calculate inflation, right? I can't remember if it was CPI or, or PC or both. CPI but if you can, in January. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. So if you can, you know, figure out a way to have average reported inflation of four to five percent, you know, which is really eight percent. Uh, and you can somehow keep that going for a decade, you can actually take a decent bite out of the real value of the of the debt. Um, so that's the needle they're trying to thread, I think. Um, question is for how much longer. And and part of that math too is there's a massive incentive to make your inflation statistics look lower than they actually are. Because if you can, if, if, if interest rates are sort of based on what inflation is doing, because you sort of have to set your policy based on that. Uh, and you know, the uh, CPI is saying you're at 4%. Um, and so interest rates are, are set at, I don't know, 2% or 5%, whatever, policy they end up taking uh, you know tighter or easy um but your real inflation is let's say 10 percent uh then you're you've just sneakily uh confiscated wealth from all of the debt holders that you owe money to um in in doing that because the real value of that debt is being eroded um at a, at a rate greater than what you are acknowledging. Uh, and incidentally, if you look at the 1980 basket of goods that was included in the CPI formula back when it started, really, um, the inflation rate there suggests that we are at like 15% uh, inflation um, when the official number is, is 7%. So that's happening and has been happening. I think um, it's just, just a sneaky tool in the in the policymakers' toolkit uh, to confiscate wealth without you ever knowing it, um, because they're telling you inflation is one number, but in reality, it's higher than that. Very sneaky. Well said. Well said. And the biggest, you know, debt that uh, Jesse, you mentioned that uh, you're, you're pulling the wool over the eyes of the debt holders. The biggest category there is uh, Social Security recipients, right? You know, yes, the federal debt is 30 some trillion, uh, but the unpaid Social Security and Medicare benefits are a couple hundred trillion in current. 180, I think, right now. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think in Why Buy Bitcoin, I think the number I used was 200 trillion, but, you know, oh, okay. order of magnitude, insanely huge number. Is it 180? Is it 200? Uh, who knows? Um, yeah, and so those are CPI indexed at least social security is secure social security is is cpi indexed uh medicare is a no a whole other uh you know gordian knot that we probably won't get into but um 
Yeah, so if you can uh, just escalate those Social Security payments by the CPI when inflation is really you know double that, then uh, then the real value of those liabilities for sure comes down over time. Yeah, yeah, I love how it's it's debt is money we owe ourselves, but really a more honest uh, definition of it would be debt and unfunded liabilities are money that future generations will have to pay uh, in order to give us the boomers who established these policies and secured our social security. Uh, yeah. <laughs> secured the bag. They secured the bag. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I remember the, the recent stats, uh, you know, percentage of wealth held by each, you know, age bracket. It's higher than it's ever been for the, you know, for the senior bracket and lower than it's ever been for, uh, for the earlier generations. And, um, yeah, they, uh, it's been interesting. You know, I used to have these conversations with boomers that I know and love. Some of them are my clients. Some of them are family members and they used to be in denial. I don't think as many are in denial anymore. Um, I think that there has come somewhat of a realization on average, um, you know, over the last few years, and I don't know if that's because of COVID or that's because of just the numbers got so out of whack that finally, you know, people woke up or maybe they're just extra focused on uh, their social security now that they've started taking it and they're thinking about whether they're going to, you know, actually get to collect it. But I feel like, uh, I feel like it's starting to dawn on a greater percentage of the population, which I think is, you know, in part why slowly more of them more of that age bracket are getting interested in bitcoin because they're they're finally seeing uh seeing the writing on the wall and uh and realizing that uh they just have to hedge against it any way they possibly can and and that's one way they can do it are you subtly shilling uh your role at swan here handy <laughs> yeah i mean look we're we're uh we're we're here to help we're here to help uh we're here to help both uh uh, boomers and all age generations, uh, <laughs> of all, uh, you know, all varieties. Uh, we don't care what, uh, age you are or what color you are or, uh, what income level you are. We're here to help. Uh, and then specifically with the uh, Swan advisor. Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the amount of managed wealth, I mean, it, just in the U S is tens of trillions globally. It's more. And of course, yes, a large percentage of that does belong to, uh, uh, generations that are older than mine and uh we are successfully serving uh those financial advisors at uh at swan and we see uh, a lot of greenfield expansion opportunities ahead nice shill nice shill and uh why buy bitcoin by andy edstrom <laughs> keep it coming <laughs> i heard you sneak it in there earlier as well you, you, you're a pro that you're a pro at this point <laughs> well i want to hear about jesse jesse's been writing on uh on an ongoing basis i want to hear a little bit more about yeah about that what, what, what are the plans Croesus? let's go yeah um well i'm i'm scaling up a Substack uh right now i'm sort of i don't know why it took me so long but i i realized that Substack is kind of the perfect format for what i'd like to do already um which is write kind of kind of intellectual uh, thought pieces about Bitcoin from from unusual angles 
in particular? I mean, whether that's about why the yuppie elite dismissed Bitcoin or, you know, extended that analogy of how Bitcoin is a frontier like the American West was. Um, Bitcoin is the Battle recent... of Agincourt. Is that what's coming yeah. next? I love history. So, right. um, all articles that uh, Jesse has already published, people who haven't read them, you probably have, but if you haven't, check them out. For sure. Thank you very much. Um, and yeah, so now I'm sort of scaling up the Substack to do to do more writing, write more about um, about Bitcoin from all all sorts of angles. I've had particular success recently with two pieces where I I, I think we forget about um, when we when we talk about Bitcoin, we get in the weeds so quickly that we forget to step back, just zoom out, and ask what is the driver that explains Bitcoin's volatility and price action to date? And then, so that's one question. And then the next question is how high can that driver take us? And for me, the answer to those, the key to those questions is uh, Bitcoin's increasing scarcity, the design of increasing scarcity, what that means from a supply demand point of view and how that, mechanism allows Bitcoin to bootstrap itself from no value to becoming digital gold, to becoming the most important store of value asset in the 21st century, to become absolute scarcity. You know, since there's, this is the only asset in human history where there's a finite number of them, there's an absolute limit on the amount of supply. Uh, and that's never happened before. That gives it superior store of value properties to anything else. And then it's the halvings that are that drumbeat that allows the next incremental slice of the adoption curve to come into Bitcoin, start adopting Bitcoin as a savings technology um, and make, and it simultaneously makes Bitcoin a harder asset, a more scarce asset that can, that can support a larger valuation because there's less supply being created every day, every month, every year. Um, so that, you know, that's been a, a story I've told over my last two pieces, um, the culmination of that is, I think when you run the numbers on the global asset landscape currently and where people store their value today, uh, there's $900 trillion of value across your classic asset buckets. That's equities, real estate, bonds, art, collectibles, money itself. And then if you ask the question of since Bitcoin, if Bitcoin, if you can accept that Bitcoin has superior properties as a store of value to everything in the physical world, because it has the ability to have a finite cap on it, which nothing in the physical world can do. Um, and it has all these you know, other inherent benefits of being gold that you can teleport across an information um, network. How much money might be attracted to might be induced to store itself in that new asset bucket as a and, you know, and, and that would mean selling out of the current asset buckets that that money is stored in. Bitcoin's a four hundred billion dollar asset today uh, in a nine hundred trillion dollar C, so that's one two thousandth of the world's value is stored in Bitcoin. That means the world collectively has a 0.05% allocation to Bitcoin. And given the properties that we've talked about, how, I think that's ridiculous and, and won't last. 
Um, and because of the remarkable properties of this thing, I think that it could reach as much as 25% of the world's value being stored in Bitcoin. I think that's my reasonable ceiling estimate for what Bitcoin can do, which would mean $200 trillion stored in Bitcoin, uh, which would mean $10 million in today's terms per Bitcoin. So that's kind of the narrative arc I've taken my readers on uh, over the last month. Um, and I've got a new post going out tomorrow. So subscribe to my Substack for that. Um, is jessemyers.substack.com. If you draw a nice graph with that and call yourself Plan C, then I think you'll get a lot of followers. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's interesting that like I have sympathy for Plan B. Um, yeah. Because I think it's directionally correct still. I think I think stock to flow matters. I just think that there's too much noise to make it, you know, an actionable, predictable, um, to, to make a price model out of it. Uh, and you know, this could take generations to for for society to properly incorporate into how it prices Bitcoin relative to other assets, the changing nature of stock to flow over time. And think about as well the the layers of fuckery, for want of a better word, that right. is going to be put onto Bitcoin from our most favorite people in the world, the Wall Street Bros. I mean, within the next few years, I for sure there is going to be you, you're going to have markets in Wall Street uh, on something like the difficulty adjustment. Right, you, you're going to have people writing derivatives and options uh, every two weeks on the difficulty adjustment. And if I'm buying at minus 2.6 and you're selling and it's settling at uh, plus 1.5, then you know one of us has won and the other one has lost. And then you're going to have people betting on all kinds of different... I mean, just look at BitBo and all of the different metrics that the Wall Street bros and financiers and derivative hounds can come up with all different ways to start paper Bitcoining, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think... Like if we if we look at the last cycle peak, like why did we get this strange bimodal top when all the previous cycles have been blow off top spikes, right? They went ridiculously high, ridiculously fast. Uh, we didn't get that. We got these two rounded tops, spring 2021, and then late 2021. Um, and I think there are four variables that were different this time, this cycle. Uh, one was the China mining ban, which I think is why we had that dip in the middle and might, might explain it all right there. That, that mm -hmm. could just, that could be the main driver. Another thing that was that happened this time around was the preponderance of leverage. We didn't really have like a significant leverage element to the market in prior cycles. And since everybody was so bullish throughout 2021, um, it meant that funding rates were pretty high. It was very profitable to take the opposite side of that. So maybe that, you know, played in significantly there. Then, then there's paper Bitcoin. Um, the, my back of the envelope math on FTX was, since they have uh, liabilities of Bitcoin liabilities, they owe people Bitcoin and they have no Bitcoin um, you know, when they finally collapsed. That meant that they were effectively creating paper Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin that wasn't, that was double counted or you know, pledged to multiple parties. Um, 
to the tune of 25% of the mining, the annual mining uh, in 2021. So, you know, FTX added 25% to what was being created in 2021 through paper Bitcoin. That messes with your stock to flow. You know, if you, if you put any stock, no pun intended, in that concept, that screws with that right there. Um, boy, and so then the fourth one, which one am I, am I missing? Uh, leverage. Well, let's call it three then. <laughs> <laughs> three is, is more than, is more than enough. Uh, three is more yeah. than enough. That's well, uh, that's well articulated. Yeah. So, so something was different, you know, these three things were different. Um, and, and some, you know, going into the future, leverage will still be a problem. China will probably not be a problem. Paper Bitcoin will probably be a problem. So mm -hmm. does that mean that we will end up getting rounded tops every time into the future? Maybe. Um, oh, you there's... know what? You know what, Jesse? There was, there's also, maybe your fourth was the Fed, maybe. That was it. It was uh, the interest rate pivot, the, the tightening pivot that the Fed did right at the end of 2021. When yeah. frankly, at the end of 2021, I was expecting us to get that blow off top that the China mining ban had sort of felt like it delayed, but then it felt like pressure was building back up in the market. It was everything was set to go to into, you know, vertical takeoff for a blow off top. And then the Fed pivoted right then. And it took all the air out of the out of the sales. Um, the the tailwinds turned into headwinds um, and that was that, uh, in, to a, to a degree that I didn't anticipate, you know, I was actually surprised at the extent to which it just, just blew out the candle right then and there. Um, so yeah, that's the fourth driver right there. Thanks, Andy. And in the future, you're in, that... good, you're in good company, my friend. I also thought we would see, I thought we would see six figure Bitcoin price. I yeah. thought it was unlikely that we wouldn't see that, and uh, yeah, by so... com conference day 2021, wasn't it? Like, that wasn't that the big <laughs> with Odell? Uh, yeah, yeah. So we were all but, yeah. most of us were surprised. Most but of just, us were yeah. surprised. Just to spitball a little bit more on on what Wall Street are going to devise around, right? You know, gambling on these metrics, gambling it because that's all it's going to be. Still good for Bitcoin because now if a whole market just emerges and becomes a huge part of people's uh, daily activity i mean these dgens and wall street they could be they could be gambling on every block you know the you know fee structure or or you know sats per byte or average time they can make a market on anything that just also is it good? Bitcoin. Is it all right? So I'm going to push back here. Is it good oh, for Bitcoin? Good. What it, what it, is, is? Is it good? Is it good? No, it's not good because it's all paper Bitcoin, but it protects it because it will never ever get shut down because now everybody has got skin in the game. They feel as though they've got skin in the game. We just the plebs just hold the underlying. We're like, you guys go do whatever the fuck you like. But now because they're making so much paper, because everything will be settled in dollars, right? They won't actually be touching Bitcoin. But they will just be yeah. following the metrics that we all know to be pure truth. And this is where the grassroots transfer of wealth really happens. Yeah, I think, I mean, look, I we're all three, you know, public Bitcoiners. And 
we all made that decision for various reasons. And I'm sure at times we've been happy about it and other times we've regretted it. But, uh, you know, I, I am a big believer in, in Bitcoin, uh, likely taking the peaceful transition path. And I'm hopeful for that. However, it's certainly not guaranteed. So everything you're saying, Princey, is is in that vein. It's like, look, let's keep this thing, uh, let's keep all powerful or as many as we can of the powerful parties, those that already hold influence, you know, those who are already entrenched in the legacy system. Let's find a way for Bitcoin to integrate itself uh, and get them on our side. And look, I'm in favor of that path. That's the path that that I you know work toward. You know whether it's with you know whether it's education or or you know business activities or anything else. Um, I also recognize that it could not go that way. Um, in which case, you know the the anon the anonymous plebs will have even longer to stack, probably at cheap uh, cheap prices, and that's another way it could go. And uh, I'd rather have the uh, above board peaceful transition than the uh, you know, to the mat, uh, fighting the existing system. And I don't know which way it'll go, but, uh, but yeah, both paths are possible. Both paths. I think Bitcoin wins in the long run. And yes, I think it's probably better for most people in the world. If, uh, if we take the, the out in the open, uh, path, but, uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope, there's so many different subgroups that have a reason to adopt Bitcoin because it incentivizes them. Um, whether that's like the energy industry. Oh, look, there's a, yep. here's a new buyer for our stranded energy. Awesome. You know, if you want oil companies to be using their stranded natural gas to mine Bitcoin, hell yes. Like we want you in our corner. That's great. Um, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that like, I want banks to have, I want the retail banks that I can't stand. I hate Wells Fargo because of how they treated me in the past because of get, receiving a, a wire from crack and then, and they, you know, terminate my account without notice. Um, I hate Wells Fargo, but I want them to set up, here's your Bitcoin savings account stored with Wells Fargo. We'll charge you fees. That would be fantastic because then Wells Fargo's in our corner. To in the same way, I want I want the I want the the boomers who may or may not have made money in the 70s investing in gold. Gold was the strongest performing asset in the seven in the stagflation of the 70s. The Dow Jones went perfectly sideways um, between 1966 and 1982. During that time, what soared was gold. I want the boomers to realize that the asset that is poised to do that this decade in the stagflation that we are now facing is Bitcoin. And here's your second. You literally lived through this. You saw it. You probably missed it. You probably didn't take a gold position then. But here's your second chance. This pattern is playing out. So come on, boomers, like get, get your Bitcoin position and ride gold 2.0. I want all of these parties under the Bitcoin tent um, because then then it's a smooth transition. Uh, the alternative of everybody feeling bitter about Bitcoiners um, is a scarier one. So 
everyone wake up to your incentives and take part. Amen. Well Educate Sorry, your well family, your family members and your, and your friends and your, uh, and your clients. Let's, should we wrap this up? Have you got any more time to, to give? We've been going for about an hour and 20. I, I know you've got busy days ahead of you. We could, I can spend a few more minutes. All right. Sure. All right. Andy, you brought, up a, you, brought, you brought up a book in our DM. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Outsiders. All right. We're talking about The, the Outsiders yeah, yeah, by yeah. William, William Thorndike. What's, so, what's uh, this? So believe it or not, uh, believe it or not, sometimes I think about stonks too. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amazingly, amazingly. Why Why do I think about stonks? Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, I can admit that I went, you know, I don't want to say all in, but let's say I made a, I went irresponsibly long, you know, Bitcoin um, at one point in the last five years. Uh, however, Raul, I still am. I, I still think it's the way to go. Yeah, me too. And even though Raul, we can, we can gift him with that quote. He fucked it so bad. <laughs> so that's the irony. That, like, that is yeah. the irony. Yeah. Anyway, go, go ahead. The history of Bitcoin is uh, populated. Yeah, populated with uh, heroes that uh, came and went. <clears throat> Kill your heroes. Um, anyway, yeah. So, so you know, but eventually you get to. Well, I'll just whatever. None of this is financial advice, and you know, I'll just talk about how I look at the world. You know, for those of us who have, you know, children to take care of and dependents and, you know, aren't just graduating uh, from college, you know, yes, I have a lot of earnings ahead of me, hopefully, knock wood. Uh, nevertheless, I have been, you know, salting away, saving for the first couple decades of my career here. And uh, even though I'm quite sure Bitcoin wins, you know, I had to allow for the uh, unknown unknowns or the possibility that I could be wrong. So am I going to be all in in perpetuity on Bitcoin? No, sorry. I'm going to diversify uh, a little bit, especially with retirement assets, you know, where I could, you know, make sales and uh, and uh, and not have to pay tax. Right. It's a lot harder for me to sell taxable Bitcoin. Yeah, a lot just, harder. Just call it stack insurance, Andy. It's the best way to like kind of square that in your mind. You know, Wait, what stack it? What stack insurance? Stonks. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Stack so you, I like yeah. that. I like that. So you don't have to sell your stack when the time comes. You, you yeah, can, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I also think there's, you know, I mean, we all make our own decisions about how much exposure to have to a single asset, but there's times, you know, there was a time when I had conviction that like, yeah, there's, it's worth the quote unquote risk to go literally or almost literally all in on Bitcoin. And there will, there may be times, you know, maybe this is one of those times I don't, I don't know, but uh, but there's but there's times when you're so certain and all the ducks are in a row that that you make that move, and then there's other times when you say, "Well, I'm very bullish for the future, but you know, I'm less have less conviction about you know the short term." Let's say, I guess this is all a very long winded way of saying yes. I did sell some of my Bitcoin in my retirement assets. Sorry, <laughs> uh, and I this isn't confession. Like you, you, you yeah, didn't there you have go. To, yeah. There you go. So William Thorndike wrote this book called The Outsiders, and it's a book about 
CEOs that were ex excellent capital allocators. And not only that, but they were uh, they stood in contrast to your classic CEO like a Jack Welch or you know the sort of very salesy, very marketing, you know, a lot of time spent on investor relations, you know, loves to do PR, loves to get on magazine covers, you know, tons of ego. No, there's a set of investors who were extraordinary capital allocators. They shunned the limelight. They zigged when others were zagging. And uh, and the returns they earned for shareholders were really extraordinary. And some of these names people probably know, like obviously, you know, it's case studies. So there's, I don't know, eight of them or something in the book. You know, Warren Buffett obviously is one of them. Um, Henry Singleton, who ran Teledyne, is another name that is less known than Buffett, but some may know him as perhaps the greatest, you know, single stock capital allocator, you know, CEO uh, of all time. You know, he came up in the in the uh, conglomerate era when conglomerates were getting huge valuations, huge earnings multiples. And so in that period, you know, he used his stock, which was arguably overvalued to, you know, buy a bunch of different companies. And then when, uh, when circumstances changed, he uh, and his stock was beat down, you know, he did huge amounts of share repurchases. He managed to repurchase something like, I think it was approaching 90% of the shares of his company uh, in the time that, that he was CEO. And then there was another period, you know, when he was, when he was selling assets, because um, the, because the time was right. So anyway, the way I look at it is someday when Bitcoin succeeds and reaches closer to its potential such that, uh, you know, such that perhaps the annualized returns are not as attractive as they may be, you know, starting from today, uh, I'll need to have other assets in the portfolio. And there's two different buckets. So Bitcoin, so like taxable Bitcoin, am I ever going to sell my taxable Bitcoin? I hope not. I haven't yet. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't plan to. Um, and so, you know, with the other part of the assets, with the with the retirement assets, though, I may have to allocate to some other types of assets. These compounders, um, like uh, William Thorndike writes about, when I do recommend the book, um, these guys are are ran companies that achieved, you know, twenty to thirty percent annualized returns over decades in some cases. Um, that probably won't do quite as well as uh, as Bitcoin is likely to do, but it's not too bad if you want to have a little bit of diversification in the portfolio. And moreover, if you have a high tax rate, you know, investing in finding these types of opportunities and knowing what to look for um, probably makes uh, you know makes a lot of sense. And then maybe I'll add that you know Bitcoin itself, in its own way, it's not a company, but it looks a little bit like one of these. Uh, very long-term compounding uh, assets, partly because of what Jesse, you know, identified earlier, what you identified earlier, which is it's all about the, you know, it's all about the supply cut um, dynamic, which is very similar to uh, to the share buyback, uh, you know, dynamic, which is one of the key tools that uh, that these very smart capital allocator CEOs took advantage of over long periods in their career. So, anyway, it's a good book. Um, it's good for uh, investors. It's good for those who, God forbid, want to own perhaps a little bit of some other assets other than Bitcoin. Yes, we do exist. Um, so that's it. Jesse, I love it. I, what do you got? I'm living. I'm living one one having at a time. Uh, <laughs> when I was at Stanford, um, there was uh, 
there was a bumper sticker on a car. Maybe it was a professor, but I, I kept seeing it around. Um, it was an old car. So I think, and it was like an old bumper sticker. So I think it was from like the 2000s in the wake of the dot-com bubble. And the bumper sticker said, dear Lord, just give me one more bubble. Cause I'll, I'll know what to do. <laughs> and, uh, I think about that with Bitcoin because as far as I can tell, Bitcoin is designed to have a bubble every four years and all you got to do is hold on. Uh, and so that's, you know, I, I'm not as responsible as Andy. I think I'm blinded a little bit by the math, but you just um, don't have three kids mom. yet. You just don't have <laughs> yeah, three kids yet. That's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably the main driver. All right. Uh, so let's. I just want. I want to add one thing, by the way, which Go I ahead. forgot. You know, relating this to Bitcoin. One thing about this book, The Outsiders, and one thing about these sort of unconventional uh, CEOs who really focused on capital allocation was all of them. Every single one of them ran as decentralized of an organization as they possibly could mm. so they were big big on decentralization and of course the way they did this was all they got to the point where they were trying to get all capital allocation decisions to the ceo right because they were very good capital allocators deciding what to do with the cash flow that their businesses generated and deciding what corporate finance moves to make you know, depending on how their stock was valued, you know, what borrowing costs were, et cetera. But then they pushed all the management responsibility as far from headquarters as possible, right? So headquarters would be extremely lean, you know, a la Berkshire Hathaway, you know, there's like 20 people or something working at headquarters. These guys all all ran a similar model. And basically, if you were, they hired very good managers, very talented, uh, motivated people, to run their various uh, businesses and divisions. And if you were performing, you, you didn't hear too much from the CEO, except when you went to, to run your, your budget by them, right? Because that took capital. Um, but, but otherwise, uh, you got to basically uh, take responsibility for whatever part of the business you were running as a manager, which, by the way, attracts the best talent because you know the best, most talented people want to have a sense of agency. They want to have a sense that that they're building and running, you know, whatever operation they're responsible for rather than getting constantly micromanaged by their boss. And, uh, and so decentralization for these guys, for these uh, best performing capital allocators of the last uh, century was key. Okay. So we're looking for a guy or a woman who's an incredible allocator running a decentralized kind of remote, tech software business and um, can see far into the future running a publicly listed company. Are you, are you thinking Michael Saylor here? Anybody <laughs> else kind of thinking maybe he's going to make the next book? Uh, there you go. Could, could qualify. Saylor could qualify. Maybe Corey, uh, maybe Corey will qualify after Swan goes public. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Is that going to happen? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, I think Sailor is, is an interesting example of, you know, zigging when the market's zagging, you know, using capital structure, right? Mm -hmm. Using his balance sheet. He's done everything you just described from the book. Everything. Yeah. 
you were just basically talking about Michael Saylor. So if you're going to hone into a stonk, then MSTR, I guess, is the, the four letters you put into your brokerage account. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, he's uh, the stock has performed well uh, since they started their Bitcoin strategy. It's outperformed the major indices. It's certainly outperformed the tech sector, right, which has gotten whacked lately. So uh, yeah, I wouldn't bet. But, I wouldn't, I wouldn't being, bet against our man Sailor. Question being, Andy, like like you said in in the book, some of those uh, CEOs got up to ninety percent of their stock back. Is this a play that Sailor might pull, Croesus, when uh, when the halving does what the halving does, and that um, that Silvergate loan is all paid off in in twenty twenty five after a pump? What do you think? Is there a play there to take back, buy back your own stock? Well, I mean, I guess it's a, a it's a risky, a risky laboratory poll of like trying to play the having cycle to issue stock and then buy back stock at the right times. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's a lever you could play, but might as well just use your balance sheet to take on dollar debt since you know that that's going to be debased um, so long as you can get a cycle plus of uh, duration before you have to pay that back. So this is actually yeah. a key point, um, and this relates to the, these guys' strategies. So it's a matter of degree in terms of how much leverage you take on, right? So like many of these guys, ran, they, they oscillated between taking on debt at opportune, opportune times and then paying it off at opportune times. I would argue that Michael has been perhaps more aggressive with his balance sheet you know, the, the most of these guys in the book were. Um, partly he's done that, though, because he does have a steady recurring revenue business, right? I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, the more stable your core business cash flow is, the more ability you have to uh, to service debt, even in a downturn um, in the market, especially in the- I don't you know, know the, the exact market. numbers, but I think it's like 50 million bucks per month that they, they bring in. I don't know- it can't be that. It's not that. Uh, I don't think it's that high. I was no. gonna say. I was gonna say he's running like a hundred million annually of cash flow, something like that, order of magnitude. Unless he's really killing it. If you're talking about, are you talking about revenue? No, I would yeah. believe revenue. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Revenue. Yes. Yeah. 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 That not, could not be profit. Yeah. Yeah. That could be. That's possible. But yeah, he has. He has a you know sticky. A sticky cash flowing business. Um, everything in in you know business intelligence, everything in software is sticky. Almost everything in in yeah. software is sticky by nature because um, you get that lock in. Um, yeah, so he's got a recurring revenue business, and that's a that's a leverageable business. It was it was interesting when when he you know went all in on Bitcoin, um, and a few of my friends in corporate strategy in, in large companies. Um, suddenly were like taking Bitcoin more seriously because they their companies use microstrategy software um, as part of their corporate strategy like motion. Uh, and so that it was like an interesting legitimization of Bitcoin. And I wonder, you know, we've all been wondering when, who will be the next um, microstrategy, the next Michael Saylor. Uh, and 
I think it, it's a it's a funny second order effect of um, a le- legitimate business brand adopting Bitcoin that it lowers the the threshold necessary uh, for people to take Bitcoin seriously. And so you end up with a, a spike in interest from people who had previously dismissed Bitcoin as monopoly money. Um, so I wonder what will happen, who will be the next company and, and uh, CEO to make that effect happen again, but surely somebody. Yeah, so here it is. And they should be doing it now, but of course they'll wait for the next bull market. Yeah, yep. Boy, I mean, um, we are are now just under 14 months from the next halving. Uh, And Mm -hmm. if last cycle, it took four months post-halving for the parabola to begin. So we are a year and a third away from from uh i think the mechanics of a you know parabolic bull market playing out before our eyes yet again so now really if that is true and it could be wrong but if that is true that then now is the time to be accumulating and nobody's going to do it until we're approaching new all-time highs that's so, right. I just looked at MicroStrategy, fourth quarter of 2022, revenues, total revenues for the fourth quarter were 132.6 million, which is basically 44 yeah. million per month. Man. There you go. You were right. You had the revenue, you had the monthly revenue figure exactly right. I mean, I was thinking in terms of cash flow. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm in, I'm in Jesse's camp on the likelihood of, you know, another four year cycle, another pump post having. I, uh, it reminds me of the, I don't think I ever wrote an article on it, but I think I did a thread, which was I actually do believe that the that the uh, the having and getting past the having is a quote unquote fundamental event for Bitcoin, and not because of you know the literal mechanics of the supply cut. And I'm curious what you guys think about this hypothesis, um, which is that when you're budgeting, you're ca- you're doing your capital allocation, and you're a miner, right? And you make some assumption about. On average, how many coins am I going to be able to mine in you know the few year life of this uh, ASIC that I'm buying? Well, I'm going to make hay when price is up, and I'm going to make hay when the number of coins, uh, you know, per block is relatively high. But I'm going to take it on the chin after the having, right? If it's you know if it's an older generation machine, uh, you know, maybe I'm lucky to break even um, or make a tiny margin. My belief is that if some government or consortium or God knows who were to ever try and quote unquote attack the Bitcoin network, you know, let's say, um, I mean, by any means, really, wouldn't the optimal time to do it be right after the having, when the reward all else equal, the block reward is much reduced when you've got the maximal number of miners who are just on the bubble, right? Who are just barely profitable or at least on a machine you know, by machine basis are barely profitable. And if you could somehow attack the network, either by regulation or or otherwise, uh, you know, beat the price down a little bit, then you knock some of these guys down off the network. At least maybe you could take the hash rate down for some period of time and you'd know that that opportunity was coming. And so then if it doesn't happen in the few months, you know, right after the halving, 
well, then you, you're pretty much safe for another uh, four-year cycle. So I actually personally think that it's it's sort of a fundamental event to get past the having, even though we all know, you know, what the in advance, what the issuance rate is is going to be. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to happen again. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. It's a good point that um, that is your most vulnerable time because it's the time of dislocation. You know, the, there's more change exactly. right then. Everything's vulnerable. Everything's a little shakier. I guess I come back to that uh, great Andreas uh, clip where he talks about what would happen if a nation state tried to 51% attack. Mm -hmm. And he goes on this rant that amounts to, well, great. They'd have to invest an unbelievable amount of money and resources and keep it a secret uh, on a scale the government's never been able to do. Um, and they would successfully 51% <laughs> attack for 10 minutes. And then we would fork, you know, the honest nodes would fork. Uh, and we would be on our own network and congratulations, you've achieved nothing. Um, which I, I love that know. story. I love the nuclear option that we're going to fork to some other, you know, to some other hash algo. Uh, I think it's a little bit wishful thinking, <laughs> but because then you got no hash rate, right? Whatever you, whatever you fork to, whatever you move to. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess it's a question of what are they trying to do? Are they trying to like implement OFAC? compliant blocks or are they trying to yeah. in some other way limit things um yeah i, I think we could see that i mean I, I could definitely imagine a scenario where there's yeah there's censorship whatever there's some right. you know whatever quarter of the hash rate is now you know censoring transactions so it's only three out of every four blocks that you can get your transactions in and that's fine um yeah, who knows right. that if something like that happened, you know, and then it quote unquote failed as an attack, you know, that'd be just another uh, example of, uh, of the honey badger taking down its latest yep. foe. And that could be bullish. And funnily enough, that would mean that the U.S. government ostensibly is now a major supporter of the security of the Bitcoin network. Everything's good for Bitcoin. <laughs> exactly. So, Andy, before I, I can't let this one slide, uh, and I want to know, uh, maybe you have a. Uh, a midweek stand-up, you know, uh, at Swan Bitcoin. Are, are you going to float the idea to um, to Corey of uh, implementing a, a dollar-cost uh, sell? Kind of. Uh... <laughs> when did I ever say that? <laughs> when did talking we about talk? the blow-off tops and uh, you oh, know, the blow-off top. If there's going to be no, a blow-off top, how should a pleb be thinking about that? If they're a, a cycle or two deep, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, because no one's living. You know, we haven't hyper Bitcoinized yet. We still yeah. live in a fiat world, uh, and you, th this idea of you don't want to sell taxable Bitcoin. These are questions people are wrestling with, right? Always, always. Every person sees, you know, understands their own situation. Every person has different levels of conviction. Every person has different uh, tolerance for pain uh, when price goes down. You know, some people have uh, have alligator blood. There's there's uh, all kinds of different life events as well. I mean, let's let's be all compassionate. That you know, yeah, 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 yeah. I think I'm not going to speculate. Well, I'm neither going to speculate nor reveal you know anything specific about the Swan you know roadmap. I will say that for advisors, you know, we have to offer more. I shouldn't say we have to. You know, for for most, I think for most plebs that are stacking and most high net worth folks that are stacking 
you know, the, the sell button is less of a concern, you know, for a financial advisor that's managing assets on behalf of their clients, uh, it's more important. And, um, and yeah, I think, you know, the future will probably for managed wealth, which really is, you know, separate and distinct from our, um, our other businesses. It's one, mm -hmm. um, it, it is a different, uh, it is a different set of requirements in terms of portfolio management and rebalancing. Right. You're being paid to manage wealth. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. So you, That's what the better well, you both, yeah. Managing is different to hodling. Exactly. And, and with time, uh, you know, with time, clients will learn, you know, to hodle in deep cold storage and self custody. You know, or with a multi-sig arrangement, you know, probably enabled by Spectre, uh, which the team that uh, we acquired is currently building out. So that's all in the future. It'll be just be it'll be more and more options. So I guess I guess that's a long-winded answer to your question of yes. Uh, you know, do I expect much in the way of selling? You know, provisioning. You know, for our core product anytime soon. Not really, because I think we still think the most important thing is to get people, uh, get people on board, get people on the mission, get people, uh, you know, accumulating over time. But yeah, maybe eventually, and maybe sooner in uh, in certain segments of the business. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think? Uh, what do you think, Jesse? Jesse doesn't. Jesse doesn't sell. Jesse doesn't know what a sell button is. <laughs> no, we're all, we're all hodlers. But I tend but, not to. You know, not to know. There's a lot of people listening that are looking for, you know, a lot of answers and everybody's at a different stage of their journey that we could have people listening to this that are just six months into Bitcoin and don't even know what a halving is. You know, we were all there. Like, yeah. We were all there. And yeah. people forget. A lot of people forget that. Myself. And there really is, there's a, there is taxes matter. I mean, like, you know, so like Swan, right? We've got our IRA product and that's going great. You know, we've seen a lot of demand. Again, with the taxes thing, it's like, yes, with your retirement assets, you should have a longer term view. So that argues for, you know, just set it and forget it. Basically, just buy it and, and hold it indefinitely. But on the other hand, if you get opportunities where either there is a blow off top or you're so, you know, overexposed that you want to trim with your IRA money and there's no tax effect, you know, that's 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 an opportunity. And it can be at the margins too. I mean, if, you know, maybe you're super bullish to Bitcoin and you put a big chunk of your retirement money into it. And then at, you know, an opportune time, you cut your position by 20%. And, uh, and if you do it, you know, toward the end of the bull market, uh, you know, that's, that's likely to round those tops, you know, to, to contribute to the uh, reduction, frankly, in the volatility which has to happen at some point in time anyway. And, uh, you know, you're, you're providing liquidity to the market when it needs it at the margin. That's not necessarily a, a bad thing. And you're putting yourself in a position to really load the boat, you know, when, when there's max fear and max pain, like we've seen in the last year. Yeah. And there's two ends of this spectrum as well, right? The, um, the, there's the people that hold in plenty of bags that want to, you know, Maybe they've they've got a big purchase in their life, but then there's the the guy that just needs a couple of thousand bucks per month just to get by. You're selling that on a peer to peer exchange or face to face at a meetup. 
then no worries. Andrew, Didn't local Bitcoin? Not... <laughs> Didn't something wasn't what a, I had read some headline about local Bitcoins, uh, like yeah, they're done shutting up shop. Yeah, well, I don't know why they did, but they just did. That was like a week or two ago. We've got a few. We've got Peach uh, appearing here out of Europe. We, we have Hodl Hodl. They're global. We've got a Beesk. They're global, and just yeah. getting down to your local meetup. It's a peer-to-peer. Uh, Meetup's the way to go, cash. man. Meetup's the way to go. You can uh, you can uh, meet your liquidity needs. Uh, meet your your need for uh, dirty dollars, or the opposite. <laughs> uh, you know, I wasn't gonna. I shouldn't say clean coins, but your need for uh, your need for non-exchange purchase coins, mm-hmm. and you get get to meet your friendly local Bitcoiners. And uh, build community, and it's yep. just a win-win all around. The social layer of Bitcoin. That's what's going to grow. That's what's going to absolutely uh, take off. All right, guys. Well, I, I've got to ask you. I mean, why not? I know you've answered it both many times. If you had one last orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give it to and why? <laughs> I forgot. Oh, my I forgot God. To prepare about this. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Who uh who's who's pertinent uh, who's uh who's the, relevant the uh, said right now? Xi Jinping, and I still think that's a really good one. Uh, I forget what I said most recently. Yeah, Xi Jinping would be so good though. It's just the, so the global game theory of that. Is maybe anything- he already maybe he already has been orange pilled. I mean, he's consolidating power uh, on an ongoing basis. He's already tried to kick out Bitcoin. Uh, he's figured out that didn't work. Maybe that that action alone has already uh, has already orange pilled him. Maybe yeah, he's, maybe he's, uh, surreptitiously he's on his stacking. own orange pilling journey. Exactly. And, uh, Do you think he he would, to... that that was his stacking tactic? Right. Fuck it. Let's maybe. ban. Let's ban Bitcoin. Let's tank the price. Let's maybe let's that was his up. come to Jesus moment. He was like, <laughs> "This this damn Bitcoin thing. I'm gonna stamp it out once and for all." And now he that didn't work. And so now he's like, oh my God, I guess I can't stop it. I got to get on board. And he's stacking sats right now. That's a world I want to live in. All right. Andy? Stacking hard, man. It's been fun, boys. Andy, you, you've not given us your orange. Like, come on, you're not Oh, what? It. I'm still on the hook? Yeah, yeah of course you wait, are. Wait, wait. He, Jesse just repeated last time. That doesn't count. He backed it up with I solid did it with flair, Andy. I did it with flair. That's true. You did it. Uh, you did it with flair. All right. Who am I going to pick to? Uh, who am you, I going to pick to orange pill? Last time you picked Britney Spears. I don't know if you remember that. I, I do not recall that. <laughs> I do not recall that. Uh, I do not recall that event. I don't know who's the biggest uh, platform. Rogan's pretty still. Rogan's still the king. Maybe I pick uh, pick Rogan. I think I picked my next door neighbor last time, who happens to be from I Argentina. Think you're right. Yes, you uh, so uh, so that was you know that was always a good choice. I do like the grassroots angle. I'll pick my other neighbor. <laughs> that was my neighbor on the left side last time. So now I'll pick my neighbor on the right side. 
I go, no, which also gonna... tells you that I'm failing at orange pilling because if yeah, uh, I already yeah, haven't, exactly. if I haven't already orange pilled both of them, then I'm failing. Uh, then I'm failing in my mission. Swan Bitcoin, ladies and gentlemen, your your one stop <laughs> shop for all Bitcoin education. Coming to you from Andy Estrom, author of the Bitcoin uh, of Why Buy Bitcoin, who cannot orange pill his own neighbors. That's it. That's it. <laughs> But but maybe if I uh, if I point him to point him toward Bitcoin in the American West, uh, he'll uh, you know we'll get into yeah. it. The guy the guy who's next door to me on the right side, you know, he bought his property for uh, about twelve hundred dollars. That's one thousand two hundred dollars. Uh, it was the third uh, parcel on the street. Uh, this guy landowner owned basically the whole side of the street, so he just carved him off a piece. And uh, and then he and his brother built the house uh, with their own two hands out of cinder blocks for a total construction cost of roughly $3,000. This was, by the way, in the late 1940s. I was going to um, say, how old is this dude? Yeah, quite quite old. Um, and uh, and so, uh, yeah, so he he's a pioneer, mm -hmm. a little bit of a pioneer in his own respect. You know, he's was basically the... Not quite the first guy in the neighborhood, but uh, one of the first guys in the neighborhood. That's Jesse's article, then. That the, you know, the the pioneer one for sure. So gift gift that guy the article, and then your other neighbor, why buy Bitcoin at uh, Christmas time, and let's see who's stacking sets. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get them both on on Jesse's Substack too. Absolutely, sounds good. Send them my way. All right, lads. It's been. Awesome as always. We'll do this again in the next four to six weeks when God knows. I mean, geez, we didn't even talk about Grayscale. Uh, oh, there's so much going on. There might even be an ETF by the next time we speak. Or, you know, <laughs> that I doubt. That I doubt. I'll take the other side of that bet. Okay. Although, what, what odds are you offering, Princey? What, what, what odds are you offering on that? Uh, what, what's the, the discount rate at the moment? on the yeah, 45 ish minus 45 percent okay so minus 45 percent to one uh if they sound interesting to you have a great is that a 45 is that a 45 45 to one is that what i heard 45 minus to one, 45 to one. <laughs> all right guys have an awesome day thank you as always for everything you're doing in the bitcoin space and for giving up your time to come on the once bitten podcast and shoot the shit and just hang out and i can't uh can't wait to see you both in Miami. If you're going, uh, it'll be awesome. Definitely. Looking yeah. forward. Thanks for having us. Thanks right, for guys. having us. Take care. Well, there you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed that rip with Andy and Croesus. Always fun hanging out with those guys. And like I said there at the end, if you're going to get to Miami, you will be able to hang out with people like Andy and Croesus and everybody else that is going to be attending. You can get a discount on your tickets just use the code bitten at checkout as the social layer of bitcoin keeps growing and growing we need to really plug into this and help each other find each other and that's why i am bullish on orange pill app and in-person meetups in general so if you're building something please make sure you're shouting about it on twitter deebs big shout out to deebs he actually just started a, uh, a Bitcoin meetup in his part of the UK via Orange Pill app and got his first attendees there. Didn't even know they lived in his region. Now he's got new friends 
and they can start building together and they've got great ideas and this is the grassroots shit that we talk about all of the time there is another conference coming up in june this side of the pond gonna be equally as big i think the way it's shaping up btc prague you can hit the link in the show notes use the code bitten to get discounts on your tickets that's going to be mid-june it's looking out for that 8th 9th and 10th that's going to be running and uh i I mean they've got some great big names already and they've got more announcements coming up as you know sailor is going to be there uh, addressing um a i think he's going to be doing a keynote Uh, i'm not exactly sure i don't want to give away any spoilers so it's going to be a fun one uh, Liberty in Our Lifetime is not a Bitcoin conference. It is a conference about parallel structures. It's hosted by Free Cities Foundation. It is run by Titus Gable and uh, Peter Young. Peter is a, a raging Bitcoin maximalist. I met Peter when we were going through the uh, the COVID days on Zoom, hanging out with him and sharing ideas with Safe, who was running his course at the time. So. It's a great conference, and I definitely suggest you head over to Liberty in Our Lifetime and watch out for more information as that comes available. Tickets are not on sale yet, but put it on your radar. That will be in October. Like I said at the beginning, Riga runs for Hoddle Hoddle, the Baltic Honey Badger, first weekend of September. So much going on. Get this stuff in your diaries and make sure you're keeping an eye on it because you do want to get across to some of these conferences and start meeting Bitcoiners in real life. That said, the usual show sponsors, Swan Bitcoin, Relay, Coin Corner, Wasabi Wallet, and Hoddle Hoddle are all brilliant ways to stack and up your privacy. They are proud sponsors of the show and I'm happy to say they are doing amazing work in the Bitcoin space. If you do want to take that extra step and get that signing device that you still have not got for whatever reason, the hardware wallet, shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten and use the code bitten will get you a discount on the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only hardware wallet. Catch you on the next show guys. Thank you for listening.